Support for the Lincoln Project podcast comes from Odoo. If you feel like you're wasting time and money with your current business software, or just want to know what you could be missing, then you need to join the millions of other users who've switched to Odoo. Odoo is the affordable, all-in-one management software with a library of fully integrated business applications that help you get more done in less time for a fraction of the price. To learn more, visit odoo.com Lincoln. That's O-D-O-O dot com slash Lincoln. Odoo, modern management made simple. Welcome back to The Lincoln Project. I'm your host, Reed Galen. Today, I'm joined by Abigail Tracy, national political reporter at Vanity Fair. Prior to her time there, she wrote for Inc. Magazine and was a senior news producer at Forbes. She's a graduate of Northwestern University, where she majored in journalism and economics and also ran cross country. Today, she's coming to us from her new home, our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Abby, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Reed. So I can tell you that I run only when chased and often only by bears. So um, <laughs> the idea that you did it like on purpose is always fascinating. To yeah, me still am. <laughs> when I run, everything just hurts. So I try and avoid it. But not to make it an athletic show or a sports show, but you still run, you said? Yeah. No, I actually did the Leadville 100 just a couple months back, which was fun. Oh, really? My neighbor has done the Leadville bike race okay, several yeah. times. And we were in Colorado for some work stuff. We were in Aspen and then we drove over to Denver, stopped in Leadville for lunch. Not what I would call the greatest lunch spot. Right. Um, and I did get a Leadville hat. And in the store, I said, if I buy this hat, do I look like a poser because I've done neither the run or the bike? And she said, this is why the store exists. And I'm like, okay, fair enough. And that's like 100 miles, right? Yeah, so it's 100 miles and you have to complete it in under 30 hours. Okay, so if I walked three miles an hour for 30 hours, I still wouldn't finish. Right, probably not. <laughs> well, and then you have to throw in the altitude. So Leadville is actually the highest incorporated city in the country. So it's the highest altitude that anybody actually lives at. It's the La Paz, Bolivia of the United States. Exactly. So listen, I want to talk to you about, you know, a couple of things today. First is your style of writing. You know, you mentioned to me before we went on the air, you've been at Vanity Fair for six years. And so I want to get your sense of how you've seen this sort of politico media landscape shift in that time. And your stories are political, but they're not sort of horse race stuff, right. if that makes sense, mm -hmm. right? You're not covering the boom, boom, bang, bang bullshit, for lack of a better way to put it, of what's going on in a morning tip sheet. But I want to start with your latest piece, which was on Vice President Kamala Harris and sort of the staff turnover piece of this. You know, it's part of a broader sort of what I would call media deluge that the vice president's been under for the last, I don't know, couple of weeks. And, you know, the thing that we forget is in modern American parlance, you know, you had Dick Cheney, right, who was obviously a big part of the Bush administration, was in the middle of every major decision. After that, you saw Vice President Joe Biden, who was pretty active with Barack Obama as president, you know, I think was someone then President Obama would take counsel from. And then you have Mike Pence, who was just sort of like this sniveling, groveling, you know, sticking his nose as close to Trump's rear end as he could, even when, you know, when Trump said, like, hang him high. And then you have Vice President Kamala Harris, who seems to be more of a traditional vice president going back to like George H.W. Bush and Al Gore. But the vice presidency has often been a place where 
You don't get a lot of attention. The attention you get is dubious at best. But now we're in this hyper-political, hyper-polarized world where the right wing and the right wing outrage machine takes everything she says or does and spins it up, you know, in their centrifuge for their own political purposes. So as you were writing that story, what was your sense of the vice president personally and how you see the maelstrom that she's been in the middle of, whether or not it was with the border or the pot? I actually think another kind of key thing to keep in mind when we're talking about Harris is we haven't had a situation where the vice president was sort of seen as the heir apparent to the presidency since probably Al Gore. And he had four years to get used to the position, had four years to kind of get his sea legs in the White House and all that. Whereas Harris, she comes in on the Biden ticket. She ran for president herself. And immediately, you know, obviously in the Beltway and elsewhere, there has always been kind of chatter around the idea of Joe Biden being a one-term president. And I think you kind of have to take all of those aspects into consideration when we talk about Harris and we talk about the coverage of her. And then on top of that, you have the fact that she's a first. You know, she's the first black woman in this position. She's the first woman in this position. She's also the first Indian American in this position. So immediately there's a different bar that's being set for her, but also a different focus that is placed upon her in a way that we haven't seen on recent vice presidents. And to your point, you know, traditionally the position is inherently deferential to the president. You know, it's kind of there and you kind of are told what to do. You don't really have that much autonomy necessarily or that much authority. But in her case, she also had this additional scrutiny that I think we haven't seen of previous vice presidents. So I think it's tough. I think it's a very difficult situation. And I also think the other thing to keep in mind is when she was sworn in. So it is right on the heels sort of as the dust is settling after the January 6th riots. So she didn't necessarily get that coverage initially that would be around the fact that she was making history. Certainly there were those stories, but I don't think there was the volume of it to sort of build her up before people started to tear her down. I don't think she was able to start from the highest perch that she probably would have had the backdrop of the inauguration been different than it was. I want to go back to one thing you said about being this immediate heir apparent in all of the chatter of President Biden serving only one term. I mean, that sort of hung around even since, you know, the nomination was sort of thrust upon him overnight almost. He never said anything about it. He did recently say, you know, I'll run for a second term. But do you think that the fact that he hadn't openly addressed it one way or the other left that vacuum that sucked in the vice president? that drove a little bit of this, you know, Buttigieg, you know, inside the White House, Buttigieg could be the next one. You know, do you think that vacuum left a lot of people to say, well, we don't know anything, so we'll just fill it? Yes, absolutely. And I also think one of the narratives that was going around during the vice presidential selection process when Joe Biden was picking his running mate, you talk to individuals in Biden world or you talk to individuals in Obama world, and the way they did frame his choice was sort of this idea of, you know, whoever he picked, the goal would be to be passing the torch to the next generation of democratic and political leadership. So that was the narrative that was happening while there was also this vacuum around him not definitively saying right out of the gate, I'm obviously going to run for a second term. So you had that. So it was sort of this idea that she was in the selection process, that she was positioned to be that heir apparent, just given what was coming out of Obama and Biden world at that time as well. So there was that framing. But I also think in fairness to Joe Biden, we never asked if 
Barack Obama was going to run for a second term. We never asked if Donald Trump was going to run for a second term. So I just think the circumstances surrounding it, yes, it did create this vacuum. But I don't know how much blame we can really put on Biden for that versus the political landscape and coverage today. It's funny. It's like, well, we never asked Barack Obama that, never asked George W. Bush that, never asked Donald Trump that. On the Trump factor, too, like it's no surprise that like we knew he was never going to go away. Right. (laughs) So the idea that like somehow now it's like, oh, my God, he won't go away. Like, what did you ever think he was? Yeah. You were under a rock if you thought he was going (laughs) to fade into the background. Yeah. Yeah. Like this was never a guy who was just going to sit in the bridal suite at Mar-a-Lago and think, you know what? I really enjoy retirement. Like this was never going to happen. And so sometimes it's like, why is everybody so surprised by that? I know that when we call it the beltway, it is a road, right? It is not a dome under which y'all live. But sometimes it feels like that living 2,000 miles outside of it. <laughs> I'm not surprised that he hasn't gone away. I never thought that he would have. And I think if you did, you were naive and hadn't been paying attention to anything over the last five, six years. So we saw the story about the staff and they obviously gave her the border assignment. Sometimes you wonder, like, did they even tell her they were going to do that before they did it? You know, that's a sort of a no-win deal. And then, you know, there's the pot, right? And there's the three reporter byline in Politico about like she uses headphones instead of AirPods. I mean, like some of it it sort of gets into the theater of the absurd, too. Right. And I think back to that idea of unprecedented scrutiny and unprecedented expectations kind of colliding with Harris. I think that's really sort of the formula that's gotten us where we are today. Well, and from my perspective, too, is, you know, when it comes to, Fox News, OAN, all of the right wing media environment, which is a very powerful and very effective mover of message, whether you agree with them, whether you like them or not, they have always singled her out. My contention is, is because for their purposes, she does two things. One is that she is a powerful woman of color, so they're scared to death of her. Secondly, because in my mind and in our position, everything has a racial coding to it in the right-wing outrage machine, she is the perfect target for their ire and for their attention because they are able to brand her, again, generally unfairly, you know, California, socialist, elite, black, whatever it is they want to do, they can paint her with those brushes and it feeds just more and more red meat to that audience. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the other thing to keep in mind is Throughout the election, we saw that they couldn't make Joe Biden that boogeyman. It didn't work for them. It didn't work for their purposes because obviously he's in the White House now. When that isn't the target, then where do you look? And there's Kamala Harris. And again, back to this idea of the next generation of presidential leadership, next generation of Democratic leadership. It also serves their purposes to try to kneecap her now versus let her build up a higher profile. And they really came at her right out of the gate in a way that I think is, again, not something we've seen. So, you know, we are vestigial Republicans. And there was always a more hierarchical structure to the Republican Party, even before it became a vertical authoritarian power structure. The last time there was a Republican vice, the last two times, one is no one expected Dick Cheney to run as, you know, the heir apparent. And he made that pretty clear. And then with Pence, again, because the Republicans, you know, are so 
absolutely personally ambitious. The idea that like Mike Pence, even if Trump had served a second term, was going to be the heir apparent was just never going to be the case. Right. They just love to eat each other. But I did not expect to see that kind of naked ambition out of the Democrats so early on before year one was over when Biden had not made a statement about, you know, a second term. And when we got a hell of a lot bigger fight going on than like who's going to be the next presidential nominee, which, as you've probably seen over the years now, you can lay down all sorts of plans, hire all sorts of staff, go visit with all sorts of elites and donors and blah, 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 blah. And the point is, is at the end of the day, 15 people are going to run for president on either side. 14 of them are going to lose. You know, 13 of them are going to be disappointed because they're not going to be the one chosen to be number two. But it was surprising to me that even the Democrats who, you know, always sort of want to live in this do the right thing for the right reason world allowed their ambition to start seeping out so actively and so early. I think there is something absolutely to that. I think the fact that he didn't definitively come out and say, hey, I'm coming back for round two, no matter what, it did kind of create some jockeying. It did create like questions. And I think back to that idea of a vacuum, like if there's ever a vacuum in D.C., it's always going to be filled by some narrative. And right now you have the vice president and then you have a cabinet secretary and Pete Buttigieg who also ran for president. So it's like you had two individuals who have very clear presidential ambitions because they ran for president in the administration. And, you know, for all intents and purposes, from what I've heard, is that Mayor Pete and Kamala get along. So it's not some like open knife fight that's happening. But I do think there is just this natural clash of ambitions that makes people assume there is. And then there's reporting around it. And look, like back to this idea of the portfolio, Kamala Harris had the border, which is a no-win issue for anyone. The other issues she had have been very difficult, you know, as voting rights is another one. And then Mayor Pete, or Secretary Pete, sorry, <laughs> Secretary Pete, he has, you know, this great infrastructure bill, and that's what he's shopping around. And I think one of the tough things with this situation and sort of this pitting those two against each other, a lot of it had to do with the timing and the news cycle of what was going on. You know, these stories came out about dysfunction in Harris's office and staff leaving at the exact time that Mayor Pete was kind of taking victory laps around the infrastructure bill passing. And so I think that timing also really contributed to that narrative as well. So just to close out on the vice president, do you think that the sort of feeding frenzy on her will do what most other things do, which is, you know, we all have a three second attention span and it'll move on to something else next week? I do think it'll fade. And I think, you know, we're not even a year in. And this happens too, you know, at the one year mark, and this is what individuals told me when I was reporting on my story as well, it's not uncommon for staffers to leave at the one year mark anyway. So while yes, there is a lot of staff turnover there right now, the hope is that she can kind of continue to build up her team, you know, get people around her that help her could, you know, turn around some of those poll numbers and all that. But the thing is, is she has time. And I hope that she, just given the historical nature of her vice presidency, I think it would be great if the narrative did shift and she was able to kind of get out of the maelstrom, as you said. Yeah. And I mean, working at the White House, I mean, I was lucky enough to do it in my 20s and I was an advanced guy, right? So like no lower creature on the political totem pole than advanced man, even at the <laughs> White House. And I mean, I was there a year. 2002, I was on the road 49 weeks. 
whether or not you're out on the road in Cedar Rapids, Iowa for the eighth time in 12 weeks, or, you know, you're sitting there getting to work at six in the morning and leaving at eight o'clock at night and everything's a crisis all the time, it'll burn you out. Well, and I think that's the other thing to really keep in mind is a lot of these individuals are folks who maybe worked with her on the campaign or were from Biden's campaign. Right. There just hasn't been a break. Yeah. So I think it's a little too early to say like what her political fates are at this point. And I do hope that it improves for her. So let me take a step up. So as you're looking for stories, you had this one about the vice president. The one previous about that was where former Congresswoman Katie Hill from California, who left office after less than a year, you know, where she is now. When you're looking for things to write about, Again, you you tend to stay away from the horse race and the battles in Congress and all that. So what are you looking for as a political reporter that has a pretty broad portfolio just reading your work? I think one of the key things about what I do versus what maybe a reporter at Politico does, it's the kind of feature style, magazine style writing that Vanity Fair is more defined by. You know, one of the things when I actually first took the job, the way it was pitched to me is writing about the people, the egos that are driving these broader stories rather than, you know, sort of that horse race back and forth, like congressional battle over a budget. So I think when I'm thinking about stories, really looking for the characters that are driving these broader trends or these broader issues. And that's kind of the goal. Like the way to put it would be, I previously worked at Forbes. And when I was at Forbes, you know, we would cover Tesla. But now at Vanity Fair, we're going to cover Elon Musk. And so I think it's that personality-driven, sort of ego-driven storytelling that I really like to tell and that politics is quite full of. I mean, the Katie Hill one was intriguing. You know, she was from, I think, the 25th District of California, sort of northeastern L.A. County, big swath of territory. I mean, in your mind, in your opinion, in your experience, if she'd been a man, would she still be in office? Yeah, I do think so. The Katie Hill situation is very nuanced. I'll say that. So there's the two pieces of it, right? There's the scandals around her inappropriate relationship with a campaign staffer, and then there's the revenge porn piece of it. And I really try to separate those two because, yes, that was an inappropriate relationship. But the reality is, is she faced incredible online abuse through the release of these nude photos of her. And the court cases did not come down in her favor, and she's not appealing. She actually has to pay the media companies and the individuals that released the photos, pay their legal fees, which is pretty wild because it was under anti-slap in California. So absolutely, if it had been a man, it would have been different. But I also think the key to keep in mind, and I don't know how many people realize this, the photos that were released were the tip of the iceberg. So they had a trove of photos, like hundreds of photos. So in her mind, this abuse was going to continue. There was going to be this continued drip, drip, drip of these photos. And I think it is really hard to contemplate, to understand what that is like for an individual when, you know, these images of your naked body are released online. And I think people need to recognize that. And I do think being a woman, she faced a really tough road ahead, kind of given that abuse and given the ecosystem at the time. So it would have never stopped, right? And then the online ecosystem is a cesspool, mostly. And then it allows and in some ways encourages the worst in humanity and the worst humans within humanity to do these things, to push this stuff around in almost like gleeful ways. You know, these photos get released 
she's now an object. She's not a subject anymore. So it's like these people have no compunction whatsoever about just piling on because to them, it's not real. They're never going to meet her. They're never going to have to deal with the things she's going to have to deal with. It's just one more example of just like how ugly the world has gotten. And for individuals, it can just be crushing. You know, again, kind of disentangling the inappropriate relationship from the release of the photos. When I met with Katie Hill and spoke with her, it was very clear that the release of the photos still affects her. Like she very much is still affected by that. And it's very difficult for her to talk about even today. And I understand that. Like I can't even imagine. So yes, I think one of the things to keep in mind around Katie Hill is this personal aspect of it. And the idea that I think especially now, politicians are seen as caricatures or not real people. Like people don't view them as real humans with real feelings who can be affected by something like that. And I can tell you right now that Katie Hill is a real person. It very much affected her. So I think it's really easy, especially in this pretty toxic political environment, for people to see somebody on the other side and not care that that is an individual with a family, with, you know, friends, that these photos or whatever are being released on. But I want to mix the kind of reporting you do for Vanity Fair and the personalities we're seeing with what you're talking about, which is this sort of, quote, real human, as you call them. Because I was on the phone with a supporter of ours today. And she said, I'm just so sick of all of the performance art. And she's a Democrat, but she said, and frankly, I'm as sick of the Democratic performance artist as I am of the Republican performance artists. And so I guess my question is, you spent six years doing this and six years examining the personalities. Have you seen that they're just two dimensional now, which is the person you see that's, you know, the Lauren Boebert performance artist, whether or not it's talking about Ilhan Omar or Thomas Massey with the 19 guns and the six family members or Marjorie Taylor Greene every moment of the day or even an AOC and a Rashida Tlaib or a Cori Bush where like they're going to go out and they're going to say the thing that they know is going to drive the most attention. It's going to drive the most conflict. It's going to drive the most tweets, retweets, donations, whatever. I mean, is that what everybody's becoming? I mean, look, politicians have always been different than everybody else, right? I grew up in it. Like they've always had a different chip. But is it now that there is no difference between the person you see on Instagram or the person you see on Twitter and the person in real life? Have they just morphed into this sort of, as you said, caricature? Yeah. I mean, I do think one, the names that you identified, I think are on the extremes of both parties in terms of that. So I do think there's a huge swath of people in the middle who are more traditional and who, you know, don't have that massive social media following. They're not talking to their supporters on Instagram. They're not kind of doing some of that stunty kind of political stuff. But I do absolutely, especially over the last six years, I do think that the prevalence of that has absolutely increased. And, you know, I do think, not to always bring it back to him, but I do think a lot does have to do with Trump. Like Trump changed politics by being that caricature, by being that no holds barred, like tweet every hour of the night, I'm going to talk to people directly. It did change it. And then you also just have social media across the board amplifying all of this behavior. and. I think politicians naturally are going to want attention. And, you know, whether that attention is building your social media following and getting attention kind of on a personal level so then you can push your legislation or get more eyeballs around whatever, you know, pet bill it is that you're really pushing is one thing. But, yeah, I think it's absolutely getting worse in terms of all of it. Well, and with Trump as an example, like there's no difference between who he is on Twitter and who he is in real life. Like that's it. 
there's nothing else. He is that shallow an individual because he's so totally focused on himself and, you know, his own well-being or, you know, whatever might benefit him. There's no quiet moment of reflection in Donald Trump's world. And I think, look, there are definitely different shades in the cram box, but I also profiled Matt Gates and spent a day with Matt Gates at CPAC. You don't seem worse for wear. <laughs> you know, I've had a year to recover. No, but so I think the thing with that is there is an awareness around the performative aspect of it. Like he wrote in his book the idea that Trump changed politics and he was following in his footsteps in terms of, you know, being on Fox News every night, like sending that ridiculous tweet, doing all that, like sort of this idea that politics is performance and he gets it. So the reality is, is like, yes, you know, you talk to Matt Gates, you have a conversation with him and he's not coming across as a guy that you're necessarily going to see all quaffed up with a lot of makeup on Fox News. He comes across very differently because I think he is deliberate in what he's doing. And there's a strategy behind it. And that's my experience with him. And I think he'll tell you that, that politics is performance. But as far as some of these other folks, I can't tell what's real or what's not, just given that I haven't spent time with them. But I do, you know, I guess everybody hopes that, like, there is some real, genuine aspects of it. Well, I mean, Ronald Reagan, you know, was asked, I think, how could you be president after having been an actor? And he said, I don't know that I could have been without it. I mean, there was a reason why we call him the great communicator. I mean, he very much understood whether or not it was the B movies, whether or not it was the General Electric speeches, whether or not it was being governor of California, whatever it was, he had honed his craft. I'd like to think that even with him, there was a person who was substantive in nature. But let me go back to Gates for a second. I'm not sure whether or not I'm more or less concerned knowing that Matt Gates knows it's all an act and does it anyway. No, fully, fully. It's terrifying. And I don't know if it's better or if it's worse. Like if you fully buy into all of these things, like, you know, it seems like Marjorie Taylor Greene might. She really might believe everything that she says and does. Kevin McCarthy certainly does not. Yes. And it's clear. Yeah. So it's like, I don't know which one's scarier. You're right. I mean, there's pure crazy, which I think Greene is. I mean, she's pure crazy, pure Kool-Aid, pure true believer. And then I think you have like a McCarthy who is never, I mean, I remember McCarthy from California, as the listeners have heard before, like this was the guy who was a deal maker. This was a guy who made the K Street guys and the big donors in Orange County feel good, right? Like, we're not going to do anything crazy. We'll make you feel good about things. When you need stuff done, we'll get it done. What most politicians probably were through the ages, right? Like, how do I get my stuff done for my people? Now he's in a situation where he's in this nest of vipers and mongoose who are fighting each other. And once in a while, like they jump up and they try and bite him too. And it's probably going to cost him. I mean, you saw Matt Gates say this week, you know, if we take the majority, I'm nominating Donald Trump for speaker. I don't know if that's true or not. But the other part of that too, is that sometimes you need to believe what these people say. You know, sometimes it's performative, but oftentimes it's true. Also, the other thing to keep in mind is at a certain point, it doesn't necessarily matter whether they believe it or not. If you have that position and if you have that influence and you have that power, if that's what you're saying, the impact is still there, regardless of whether you're a true believer in you know, that statement or that policy or whatever it may be. For example, you know, two big state governors, Ron DeSantis and Greg Abbott, to your point. I think DeSantis is a true believer. It's convenient for him, but he's also a true believer. Abbott is not. 
and he's doing all these things to protect his what he sees as his right flank and you know a potential future presidential run which is someone who's known him or watched him for a long time like makes me laugh heartily the idea that he could be president but that's one of those guys where he's doing this because he believes that he's afraid of his lieutenant governor who is a true believer he's afraid of the two goons who are running to his right he's afraid of the republican base he's afraid of trump and everything's done out of fear but to your point SB1, the voting bill passes. SB8, the abortion bill passes. Permitless carry, where any 18-year-old can go buy a gun. Vigilantism is introduced. He's downplayed masks. He's downplayed vaccination. And the result is going to be chaos and death. And it comes back to politicians do need to recognize that it's not necessarily just about their next election or whether they're going to hold on to their seat or, you know, the next highest office. And I think right now it's a scary ecosystem where people are doing crazy things just to protect their political ambitions. But at the end of the day, you really hope that there is a sense of responsibility and accountability. And the thing that scares me is that there has absolutely been an erosion of that. And I think that has been a symptom of Donald Trump and kind of what we've seen over the last four or five years. Yeah. So let's fast forward like three weeks, right? So we're coming up on the first anniversary of January 6th. And to your point, Ted Cruz, Josh Hawley, both Ivy League educated elites knew and know to this day that Joe Biden won the 2020 election freely and fairly. It was the biggest and most secure election in our nation's history. And yet on that day, they went to the well of the House of Representatives and they objected to the counting of the electoral votes, a largely ceremonial process for their own political purposes. And I would say that Cruz got in on it because Hawley beat a march on him and he had to follow Hawley down. And then you see like someone like Tom Cotton, who was probably considering is like, eh, you know, this isn't where I want to be. And then you see Hawley raising his fist at the people who are about to storm the Capitol. And so that's one of those things where, to your point, they know what they're doing is wrong. They did it for their own political ambition and sort of the republic be damned. Well, and I think that's where things get really scary. And I think January 6th was the perfect encapsulation of some of these trends that are troubling, you know, around politicians and around sort of this idea of, all right, how crazy do I have to be to get that Donald Trump nod in my next race or to win a Republican primary? Like, how far right do I have to go on this? Like, how much do I have to appeal to this base? And I think that's really a problem. And again, like, not just among Republicans, like, I think Democrats, too, it presents maybe in different ways. But I do think the polarization around everything is pretty scary. Let's stay on January 6th for a second. So in your six years, you were probably getting started right around the time, I assume, that maybe Trump hadn't announced yet, but he would shortly. So I started at Vanity Fair a week before he won the nomination. The week before he won the nomination. Mm -hmm. Okay, so you'd been at least able to observe sort of his rise through the Republican primary. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's interesting thinking back on those first debates of 2015 when he sort of rolled onto the stage and did his act. You know, I was talking with some friends of mine. I'm like, you know, if that guy had said that about my wife, like I'd have gone over and punched him in the face. Right. (laughs) Right. And like that was the answer to that, whether or not it was Jeb Bush or Ted Cruz or anybody else. If you're Rand Paul and he makes fun of your hair, like, you know, walk over and say, say it to my face. Say it in my face. You know what? Donald Trump would have backed down because he's a bully and he's a coward. But they just let him roll. And it seems like everybody now, to your point about it started with Trump, it's metastasized. And we can't either convince people 
wake them up, make them believe. And I talk about this not just with vestigial Republicans, moderate Republicans, Democrats, or the media. Like, what will it take in your mind for everybody to say, you know, January 6th was the beginning of something, not the end of something. And, you know, we're on a path here. Or maybe you don't believe it. Maybe you don't believe it either. But certainly from our perch, we sort of scratch our heads and scream into the wind, like, wake up, everybody, wake up. I mean, is it this normalcy bias? Everybody just wants to pretend that the fever will break? So I think two things. I think one kind of backs to this idea of the beginning of Trump's run. I think what we saw was people not taking him seriously, whether it was his opponents or whether it was the media or whether it was Democrats, just didn't take him seriously. And look how that turned out. You know, he won. And I think what people need to do is like continue to take things seriously that they might rather ignore, avoid, or pretend didn't happen. And I think when we talk about Trump and then when we talk about January 6th, I think you're right. Like it's very scary. And clearly there's something going on in this country. And the fact that that happened is absolutely crazy. I don't necessarily know what the answer is to it, but I do think that there is a responsibility upon our elected officials, particularly Republican elected officials, just given the dynamics of January 6th. And I don't think they're necessarily stepping up to the plate right now. And that's no, a problem. Well, they're cowards. Yeah. Unfortunately. I mean, Maggie Haberman said this thing the other day on Twitter, maybe it's a couple of weeks ago now, like we have to remember that there are a lot of people, especially the Republican House conference, who like believe in this stuff. Like if we're turkey, hungry, okay, sure. Good with me. And then there's other people who fear. And then there's the silent probably 20 or 30 who root on Kinzinger and Cheney, but are never going to pop their heads up. You know, I mean, maybe the eight or nine who voted for impeachment, who voted for censure, those kinds of things. But, you know, they do those things. They speak by their votes, but not with their voices, if that makes sense. Yeah. Not a lot of profiles and courage happening right now in the Republican <laughs> caucus. Right. And then you see the craziness, too, of I knew that Mitch McConnell was never going to send this country into default. Just too many equities with too many guys with, you know, nine zeros behind their names. But, the, you know, the House Republicans are going crazy on it. And it'd be fascinating to see whether or not it's Josh Mandel or J.D. Vance in Ohio or Eric Greitens or the guy who pulled the gun on the protesters in Missouri or Dr. Oz or Herschel Walker. Like in that vote, would you have stood with Mitch McConnell or would you have stood with Donald Trump? And I bet all of them would say, Donald Trump. And I believe most of them would have voted no, because to them, the conception of reality is not an issue. And again, back to this idea of political ambition, like I don't think anything is really going to change. If it didn't change after January 6th, I don't know what is going to change it other than Donald Trump no longer being the de facto leader of the Republican Party and having this ability to influence primaries or general elections wanes, I don't think anything is going to change because, again, these are politicians and they have political ambitions. And if that's what they're focused on, they're going to stick with Donald Trump. And that's what's really troubling. If it didn't change at January 6th, it's not going to change until he no longer has that power and that ability. Right. And that was the moment in the probably maybe the, let's call it a week generously afterwards, where if establishment Republicans, decent Republicans were going to use this sort of cognitive dissonance of what they'd seen, heard, and experienced, that was the time when they needed to do it. And no one did. Yeah, I think there was a window and it's closed, unfortunately. And that can be a pretty scary 
sort of scenario as we move forward. So before we get out of here, so Abby, what's on your radar screen right now? What are you seeing out there? Not necessarily on a story you're working on, but what's some of the interesting things, some of the interesting personalities or egos you're sort of taking a look at? One thing I'm paying close attention to is actually what is going on more at the state level. Obviously, in 2020, we saw the importance of governors and secretaries of state and attorneys general. And so I'm really starting to kind of think about what's going on at the state level, especially after what we saw in Virginia as well, and some of the trends that we've seen in post-2020 elections. So that's one thing that I'm really looking at. And in terms of, you know, personalities, there are a couple of people who are piquing my interest. I think there is something to watch for within the House Republican caucus as well, because you did mention Lauren Boebert and Marjorie Taylor Greene, but now we have, you know, this feud with Nancy Mace. So I'm kind of keeping an eye on some of those dynamics and keeping an eye and an ear to the ground for if there are kind of opposing forces to that. Mace was an interesting one because she said the right things after January 6th. And I was like, okay, all right, we might be okay. And then for some reason decided, okay, I guess I'm just going to stand in the middle of the political highway and let the metaphorical trucks hit me going either way. And I think there are very few and maybe no politicians or office holders who are talented enough to pull it off. Yeah. And she was interesting because her seat's interesting in South Carolina. And she didn't win her election by much, but she has sort of continued to toe that Trumpian line. But then you also see her taking shots at some of her colleagues who are on the crazy spectrum toward the end. So it is kind of interesting to see how people are trying to find their footing in this current climate ahead of the next cycle of elections. Well, and, you know, I mean, for anybody who like their highest and best ambition is to be a member of Congress, like, you know, like that's a tough life. Yeah. Right. And one that just can't be all that fun on a good day. And, you know, we even heard a rumor that there's a prominent senator from Florida who's like, I really hate doing this. I really, really hate doing this. Like, why do I keep doing this? Like, that's okay, right? Like, it's okay to say, I don't want to do this anymore. If you're not committed to the job, I think it's a different story when it's someone like an Anthony Gonzalez who says, I don't want to do this anymore because I'm sick of the threats against me and my family. That's a much darker and different thing than saying, I've been here for six years, however long. I can't operate the way I want to. I can't get the things done I want to get done. So I'm going to beg off. The through line across the spate of retirements that we've seen on either side of the aisle over the last couple of years is a combination of those two. I think there is a general fatigue among quote unquote normal politicians. Of which there are a lot. Unfortunately, yeah. they don't get much ink and they don't choose to spend a lot of time speaking up. Right. And so I think there's a general fatigue over sort of the what we're seeing in terms of the toxicity of the environment right now. And then there's also the gridlock. So it's like you're not getting anything done. Everybody's mad at you all the time. Everybody's mad at everybody all the time lately. And so I think people are quitting as a result of that. And unfortunately, the people who are quitting are probably the people we need most, the people who should stick around. Yeah. Well, listen, Abby, before we let you go, where can our folks find your articles and where can they find you on social media? Yeah, absolutely. So my articles are on VanityFair.com or in the print magazine. And then you can find me on Twitter at Abigail Tracy. All right. And as always, gang, you can find me on Twitter at Reed Galen. Abby, thanks for joining me today. Thanks again to everyone for listening. Be sure to follow and subscribe to The Lincoln Project on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or however you listen. 
don't forget to leave a five-star review. To connect with us, follow us on Twitter at Project Lincoln. And for more information on our movement, to join our mailing list, subscribe to our newsletter, or make a contribution to our efforts, visit lincolnproject.us. Also, be sure to check out our LPTV lineup, including The Breakdown with Tara Setmayer and Rick Wilson, which airs Tuesdays and Thursdays at 8 p.m. Eastern, as well as We're Speaking with Lisa Senecal and Maya May, which airs Wednesday nights at 8 p.m. Eastern. All shows you can stream live on the Lincoln Project's YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter pages. And we'd love you to join us for our newest show, Lunch with Lincoln, which airs every Friday at noon Eastern on our YouTube channel. For the Lincoln Project, I'm Reed Galen. See you on the next episode.